Today's Bible reading comes from Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 30. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites, Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omens for each person, And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is Sabbath to the Lord. 
You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Thanks, Sue. Thank you, everyone. Uh, Political leaders and those who panic bought and navigating the restrictions are three things I have grumbled about in the last few months, and I'm sure you have too. But to be honest, my grumbling this week is not as obvious as that. I mean, it is. I mean, you hear me grumble about it. But really, that's not my biggest problem in life. My grumbling's far more subtle, far more less obvious. I'm a silent grumbler, I've realised. And so it normally goes like this. Maybe you know someone like this too. I like my mornings to be in a certain way, done in a certain time, and I don't like anyone to get in the way of that. But if you get in my way, or things happen that don't go to plan, I won't tell you that. I'll grumble at you under my breath. And I'll give you grumbly eyes, and I'm like, I'm like this. And very soon, you'll know that I'm upset with you, and I'll grumble at you. But you'll never hear it from me. I'm too polite for that. And then, my grumbling will rub off onto you, and you'll grumble at me for being grumbly at you. And then we'll have a grumble party. And that's how I grumble. Maybe you know someone like that in your family. Or maybe you are that, and you're very glad that you don't live with anyone else at the moment because otherwise you'd have to face that with someone else and you can grumble all you want just on your own. And so that's my sad tale of grumbling. Maybe that's yours. Maybe you have a different one. I don't know. But we all grumble. And we're going to explore this today. And it's going to sound ridiculous. It's going to sound ridiculous. After all, these are the people... That three days, three days ago, sang in Exodus 15, the Lord is my strength and my defense. In your unfailing love, you will lead me. However, three days after that wonderful declaration of praise, they're hungry and thirsty. So let's pray, commit our time to the Lord, and then explore this a little bit further. Father God, thank you that you hear us and you know us, and you've given us your word to learn about who you are and what it means to follow you. Father, today as we open up Exodus 16, we're going to look at grumbling. Help us, Lord, to analyze our hearts. Spirit, convict us of our sin. May we bring it before you humbly and see that Jesus redeems and forgives grumbling hearts to be thankful because you are enough, Jesus, and there never will come a day when you're not enough. And we can always be thankful for that. So help us now to hear your word, to sit under it. Amen. Uh, Tim Chester is a pastor in the UK, and he very famously said this once. uh, Perhaps you sing of God's unfailing love on a Sunday morning, but three days later you're grumbling. This is exactly the situation God's people are in. We've sang today, been sung too. Perhaps you sang and enjoyed the new song. 
Yet by Wednesday, I'm sure, you will grumble. And today's service will seem an insignificant blip in your life. But if you remember one thing from today, just one thing, may it be this. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. And so the big takeaway is that will God's people be able to trust God to both redeem them and provide for them? This is the new challenge they're going to face as the people of God because life looks very different on the other side of the Red Sea, remember? And they were going to learn now all about not just life and how God redeems them, sorry, not just how God redeems them, but life under God and what it looks like to trust Him. Are they going to do that? Are they going to trust God or will they give over to a grumbling judgmental heart? So we'll explore this. Three stories of grumbling we're going to look at today. Make some comments and then see how Jesus really is enough for a grumbling heart. And hopefully we'll have a reality check as well for our own hearts. Because I'm sure if you're like me, we do need to keep our grumbling in check, especially with the year that we've had. So first thing to look at is a grumble about water. Exodus 15. So immediately after they sing the song of praise, we read this. Moses led the people of Israel from the Red Sea into the desert of Shur. And for three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why they call the place Marah. Three days, confronted with lack of drinking water. And a whole new way of doing life. You have to realize they can't run to Egypt anymore, can they? They don't know what to do. Normally they go to Egypt and there was water around. They would drink it if they got thirsty as a slave. But now they can't do that. They have no frame of reference for this sort of thing. What does life look like not being a slave on the other side of the Red Sea? So they do what we do when life's confusing and we don't have a reference point. We don't like the change. We grumble. We complain. Here's what they say. The people grumbled against Moses because it's his fault. You always blame the leader, you see. What are we to drink? And then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood and he threw it in the water and the water became fit to drink. Can you see how horrible that moment is? Instead of thinking on all God has done, hmm, we saw the plagues, we experienced the blood of the Lamb saving us, we crossed the Red Sea, we touched the walls of water with our hands, we got through, we sang a song. I'm pretty sure God can make water for us. Just I'm sure God's got us covered. Instead of thinking like that, they lost their perspective. But you know, God is kind. And God shows them that he'll provide for them by turning this bitter spring of water into something fresh and life-giving. But again, realize that God led them here to a bitter spring because God has a bigger purpose than simply providing for their stomachs, you see. You see, God is interested in helping them come to terms with who they are as his people. With who they are as his people. Look at the next verse in chapter 15. In verse 26. If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. What they're learning is that life is about living in step with the creator God. And that means having their needs met in a completely different new way. 
You see, what happened? When they left Egypt, they didn't just physically leave Egypt. They actually kept all the Egyptian gods and ideas in their back pockets. Read Ezekiel 20 if you want to know more about that. They took the gods of the Egyptians. They took the practices, the habits, the cultural, the life. They took that with them, right? You can take the people from Egypt, but you can't as easily take Egypt from the people, right? And so there's a whole heap of stuff that God needs to undo. Habits, trusts, practices, idols, beliefs. That's why the new life with God on the other side of the Red Sea is about listening, thinking, according to and after the character of their God. And it will take time and wisdom, words, correction, discipline, obstacles, challenges for this nation to trust their God. Just how it is for you and me, actually. Maybe some of you got came to Jesus, got saved later in life, and you realized pretty quickly there was a whole set system of thinking and beliefs that God challenges you on to undo, to trust him anew in. Or maybe you got saved at a very early age. You cannot even remember what it was like to not trust Jesus. And as you got older, through your teenage years perhaps, you realized there's a whole other way of living that looked enticing. Maybe you lived that way for a while and then realized, now I have to undo some of that living. And so, what sounds very curtailing by today's standard of freedom in this verse is that they don't get to define or make up right and wrong either. Mm -mm. It's been given to them straight from the very nature and character of God. And that's a good thing, by the way. It's a very good thing. And the good news, God knows their grumbling hearts. Repeated in this chapter, God heard their grumbling hearts. And, and two, the reference to God being the one to heal takes its cue from the water. Their hearts are like the bitter water as they grumble, you see. And just as God was able to heal the water, so he too can heal a grumbling heart and a lack of faith. The question is, will they get it? Will they trust God? Or long for Egypt? And that's the challenge, isn't it, for you and me as well. We can trust Jesus to save us. That seems very sensible. I think I can trust God to save me. But this new life looks different. And all the stuff that you need every day for these people, it's not coming from the same place, Egypt, anymore. Maybe some past sins are exposed in your life since you've been following Jesus. Maybe a previous hurt is being exposed again. Life's getting ridiculously hard just for following Jesus. And you think, this is not what I signed up for. Jesus can save me. Yes, but the life that I have now for following him, that wasn't on the table when I signed up for this. And I get that. But remember too, that sometimes the, the shackles of slavery are on so tight, when they come off, it hurts because the blood flows back. Sometimes it's necessary for that to actually be exposed so you can live in the new life that God has for you on the other side of the Red Sea. It's all part of the new life. It's all part of God reschooling you, living under his loving rule and care because the key difference between Egypt and the other side of the Red Sea is what? They're free and they follow Yahweh God now. And that's what they're learning. You can trust God not only to redeem, but to provide for you. And in fact, at the very last verse of verse 27, it sounds like if I was one of these people that grumbled, and I experienced verse 27, I'd hang my head in shame and feel very sheepish. Just what it says. Then they came to Elim, 
where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees and they camped out near the water. <laughs> God, you haven't provided anything. You know, I'm really not happy about this. Oh, by the way, here, I'll, I'll make the bitter water thirsty. And actually, look over there. Oh, 12, 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Like, God could not have led them to a better place. But he did it through showing them what was in their hearts first. So did they get it, though? And unfortunately, they didn't. If you remember the Bible reading, Exodus 16, they didn't. Have you ever been hangry, though? Not hungry, hangry. Do you know what hangry is? I, I, di- I didn't really know what it was until I had Edward. And in the mornings, he wakes up and he can't even do anything. Life is a disaster. There is tears, he's not here today, tears and, and anger and screaming and viciousness and just this incredibly different kid. And suddenly you plonk him down and you shove food in his mouth and maybe, obviously Alex is nodding. Is that what you do with Alex as well? <laughs> He's a different kid after you give him food. And I cannot believe the change. Hangry is a real thing for Edward. He raged through the morning, giving breakfast, different kid. And this is kind of like God's people here. Exodus 16. They travel on and hunger pains overwhelm them. Hunger's a horrible thing. And we probably don't really experience that as we get older. Um, reading a, a Homer's Odyssey. And uh, Odysseus, uh, I can't even pronounce his name. Odysseus. He gets hungry and it describes hunger pains back, you know, a long time ago. And it struck me reading it that I've never been that hungry. And it really does your mind and your brain in when you get particularly hungry. Anyway, they're getting hungry, God's people. Look at verse 1. In the desert, they grumble against Moses and Aaron again. The Israelites said, If we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat. We ate all the food we wanted but you brought us out here in the desert just to kill us and starve the entire assembly to death. Their grumbling's getting worse, isn't it? First time they showed a lack of trust. Now their grumbling has changed the narrative. Do you get that? The grumbling has changed the narrative. They made Egypt out to be a romantic dance they want to do again. A tango they have to have. A dinner party they want to go to. A date they want to have. Even though they know... They were slaves. The meat pots were associated with slavery, but right now the meat pots were associated with anything but where they were. All they could remember about Egypt was the food. Was the food. Yet again, God graciously meets them in their grumbling. He says, I'll rain down bread from you. Go and collect it every day. On the sixth day, gather twice as much. See, God's cure to the grumbling here is to remind them of the new story and the new life they're living. It has a twofold purpose. Firstly, to test them. Will they indeed trust the goodness of God? Will they indeed trust the good God and follow his instructions? And as verse 6 and 7 say, they would come to know God as redeemer and provider. Redeemer and provider. I mean, how tragic to have a full belly. Miraculously fed, by the way. Needs met and to gloat and to boast about your own ability to do it. I collected the food. I am full. I am satisfied because I did it all. I am amazing and I'm not grumbling because I met all of my needs. And not have an inkling about the God who provided it for you. A lesson I'm still learning, if I'm honest as well. But sadly, not a few of them fail it miserably. Look at verse 20. Some of them paid no attention and they kept part of it until morning and it was full of maggots and it stank. And as often, 
when we take life into our own hands, we find the same thing. It just stinks, doesn't it? And at this point in our story, we're left wondering, are God's people as just as hard-hearted as Pharaoh? It seems like it. But remember, hearts are tricky, complicated, messy, slow to change things. And so in verse 22, God clarifies a pattern of life he wants his people to have. A new way to work and rest, quite unlike anything they've ever experienced. And you have to understand this in light of their slavery, okay? This is what the Lord commands in verse 22. Save what is left and keep it till morning. Now that would be hard. Some of them have done that and realized it turned stinky and maggoty. But they did it, and it did not stink. It did not get maggots in it. But they still went out, some of them did, on the seventh day, and they found nothing. God has legislated something called the Sabbath. The first time we see the Sabbath since Genesis, since Eden. You see, God is creating an environment for his people whereby they have a healthy work-rest-life balance. Did you get that? Life under God is work, rest, repeat. Work, rest, repeat. Being made in God's image, imagio Dei, means humans are made to work and rest just like God himself. In the garden before sin corrupted and and brought everything to chaos and out of line with God's perfect design, work was there. Work is not sinful. Often we make work into a sinful thing for our identity, to feel like we have purpose and meaning. Or we avoid work because we don't like it. But here's the thing. God will provide the work and the food and the water. And he'll provide rest when they need it. But will they be able to trust God when it comes down to resting, not just working? You see, it's easy to trust God when you can see the food each day. When you open the fridge and you can see, I'm going to eat that for dinner, and that's there, and I've got these in my freezer. But when you couldn't see the food for these people, they couldn't see it on the Sabbath day, the seventh day, would they trust him that their food wouldn't go bad too? Because it did every other day of the week. I mean, this doesn't make economic sense, really. Tell people who have seen, for five days, your food goes bad the next day, keep it on the sixth day. It doesn't make sense. But that's part of the story's point, you see. Sense lies in trusting things will work out if we do what God says. You know, not being able to rest, I think, is just as hard as working too much today. Because not being able to rest, at one level, says, I do not trust God that you will provide I don't trust God that you can do life without me because my work's so important. I need you, you need me actually, God, to keep the world revolving. And if I rest, I'm depriving the world and all the people around me of me and I can't have that happen. And my identity is so tied up in my work. To rest means I'm essentially placing my identity on hold for a few hours or a day or a week. And I can't do that, God. I'm sure, as ridiculous as that sounds to hear it out loud... Many of us have thought that when we come up to holidays or Christmas or when we've worked for so long and haven't had a break and struggle to rest. But rest is built in the fabric of creation. And even if God rested after creating, what makes you think you can push through? And chapter 16 ends after a day of rest and, and there's a high hopes that people get it. In verse 30, the people did Sabbath and rest. But they're not quite out of grumbling town yet. Look at the last seven verses of chapter 17 as they grumble against Moses and Aaron again. 
The final story of grumbling is similar to the first in that they don't have any water, but this grumbling is even more deadly. This time they begin to quarrel with Moses, 17 verse 2, which in verse 4 we read was a physical altercation. They picked up stones wanting to kill him this time. Don't miss that. The grumbling has gone so extreme, so intense, so toxic, that now the grumbling isn't just, I'm upset, you're going to kill us, I've retold the narrative. Actually, we're just going to kill you because it makes more sense now. While they may have had faith in God and Moses once they crossed the Red Sea, 1431 says they did have faith in Moses and God. It's quite another matter to see if that faith lasts into the next trial. Kind of feels a bit cruel, doesn't it? But you see, trusting God is not just a once-off event. It's a way of life. That's the point. And, once again, God meets them. This time in a sort of mini-exodus. This is a strange event that Moses and God have to face. They grumble, Moses cries out in verse 4. The same word that Israel cried out too, by the way, in chapter 2. Moses says that this time, instead of Egypt oppressing Israel, Israel is oppressing Moses, and he cries out to God. And God says, I'll go before you, go to the rock, get your stick, smack it really hard, just like you did on the water to part the seas. When you smack it, water will come out. And this time, instead of passing through the waters to be redeemed, you will see, I'll provide you with water to remind you that I am the one to look after you and provide for you and sustain them in this new life. It's a visible reminder, you see. Simple, late in point, Paul picks it up in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, this rock's Jesus. Don't ask me how the rock is Jesus, but this is what Paul says. This rock foreshadows Jesus, I should say. And how God himself goes out. And how God himself strikes the rock, just once, like Moses did. And how when God struck the rock, Jesus, the rebellion can stop. The quarreling can end. And God provides spiritual living water for his people too. And the point of 1 Corinthians 10 is Paul says that we would learn from the Exodus event not to set our hearts on evil like they did, concluding falsely that the Lord is not with us. God has abandoned us. He is not among us. You see, no lack of food or water or grumbling hearts or other nations, in fact, you see that in the rest of chapter 17 with the Amalekites, no other nation against them can change the fact that God is their God. He will keep them on track. He's interested in them. He will change their hearts one step at a time as they come to terms with life on the other side of the Red Sea as his people. So, let's pause. Let's wrap this up about grumbling. Three things to summarize. The last one's really the main point, but two things I think we should just press a little bit more. Firstly, is that the journey is not about comfort or control. The journey is not about comfort or control. It's very clear that they're in the desert. Every time this happens, you can read, they're in the desert, they're in the desert, they're in the desert, they're in the wilderness as they face every crisis. And as they face every crisis, they're led into that place by God. God shows them in the crisis much deeper problem than hangry pains, much deeper problem than a lack of water. The desert exposes their hearts. The desert exposes their hearts. And and the question we ask when we read it is they just don't seem to be learning the lesson you'd expect. By chapter 17, you would think, ah, they're going to trust God now for food and water. But they don't. But the point is, you can trust God in the most massive of all life-changing events, like leaving Egypt. (laughs) 
seeing creation break and come undone. You can trust God to redeem you through the death of another, through the Lamb's blood. You can trust God to get through the waters. And you know what? You can trust God in all the humdrum daily moments of life just as much. For food and water, God is Lord over it all, you see. And that's the story of the desert, about being schooled in the way of God and often to expose your heart, it is not about comfort and it is not about control. And I think what's been so enlightening, and as I reflect on this year, on 2020, the thing that has been exposed is exactly those two things, the idols of comfort and control that we've built in our Western lives. We plan holidays, we plan trips, we have schedules. We like a comfortable life, we like relationships with other people. Work and school to be well balanced. Time for me, time for myself, time for my family. Rest, life's busy. But suddenly, it is all thrown out the door. Everything's out the window. Life is out of control. And there's so much change on top of the normal rhythm of life. And maybe, maybe in all this, what's going on is that the idol of comfort and control has been there for too long and we've not noticed it. Part of the pain when an idol is ripped away, is that we finally realize how much we were dependent on it. It hurts because we built our life around something that wasn't stable, and when it falls over, it hurts. So the question confronting us is, should I return to a comfortable, normal life and rebuild that idol on the other side of COVID? And, And then maybe we're doing what God's people did here. We're grumbling about what's in front of us and all the change and all the difference. And instead of seeing it as an invitation from God to seek him and feel his power and trust his provision in a new way of life towards us, we subtly reject God and replace our faith with grumbling and fantasize of what life used to be like or what life will be like when there's a cure. What if 2020 was the year that we were to be reminded that life is more like a desert than a cruise ship? that here isn't our true home, the road we're on is going to be met with uncomfortable, out-of-control moments, and that what we need isn't comfort, but a cartographer for our hearts to lead us to our true home. And as I've thought about it this week, the thought I kept coming back to is that maybe I'm grumbling about things that God wants me to see he is Lord over, even as I get ready in the morning. Maybe I'm grumbling about something in which I just need to see, God, you're the Lord over this. And the temptation in all this, the next point, carries on really well, is to judge God. That's what grumbling does. See, they pulled out their inner lawyer. Did you notice? (laughs) Three times. Inner lawyer comes out. "Uh, Excuse me, God, let's put you on trial because you're failing in leading us. And I have all the evidence here that says you are doing a bad job and your servant is terrible. And actually... I could make a compelling case and win the argument that Egypt was better and that you don't care about us. So let's just take you on trial, God, and see what happens. The temptation is always to grumble when God doesn't provide in the life we'd expect or the way we'd hope. I do wonder whether the Lord's Prayer would have made any difference at this point if it was around for God's people. Because it begins by focusing us on God, asking for his kingdom of will to be done before we ask for our daily bread. It says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
give us today our daily bread. The point is that God will always give enough so that we won't stop trusting him, you see. God will always give us enough so that we will not stop trusting him. And in the desert, you and me are tempted to dethrone God, grumble and reject him, even at his at work. So take the opportunity to trust God instead of tempting him. Because Jesus is always enough. Jesus, the rock, the true bread from heaven, the living water, he came down to satisfy us. Look at what he says in John 6, verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. It echoes the Exodus, does it not? The truth is that God is the one to give us identity and fulfillment and forgiveness and relationships and life. And when the grace of God in Jesus defines me and you, we can always give thanks to God. That when we grumble, God is at work changing my heart, reminding me that because he has given us Jesus, his own son, that one day he will give us all things, says Romans 8. And that because he has given us Jesus, we can be filled with gratitude for his good gifts towards me and others as well. And I think this is where it really comes down to it too. When we were first married, we did what a lot of you have done, I'm sure, and you get a rental and you get your home and you fill it with mismatched, secondhand, cheap, rubbishy bits of furniture because that's all you can afford or whatever you get given. And, you, you know, you have the couch that looks different and, and, the, and the bookshelf that doesn't match and you have to prop up with a brick and, and you know, you get your aunt to grab on this set of knives that she's had 50 years that don't work and cut anything. And, you know, it's, it's just wonderful to get, get anything brand new, right? But do you know what happened to me? I was thankful for that because we had a rental and we had, God, thank you for the hope, all those wonderful things. Yet, I would look at a couple married for 10, 20, 40 years and come tax time, I would see them use their tax return and they would buy a new fridge or a couch or a table. And because I'm so polite, I'd never say anything, but I would think this, I can't do that. I had to pay rent with my tax return. Why do you get to do that? That's not fair. And I grumble at watching them live 40 years ahead of where I was at have a totally different job, have a totally different circumstance. I mean, this is how ridiculous it is, but I was grumbling at them. And I'm too polite to say anything, so it stewed on me. And then every little thing... I remember one couple I saw I was thinking this way about, and this is terrible. They went shopping. I grumbled that they bought two of something. This is before panic buying, so don't feel upset with them either. But before, they bought two of something. One in the cupboard, one to keep. Who, I mean, we, most people do that, I'm sure, but I couldn't, we couldn't do that. We couldn't afford to do that the way life was for us. It just didn't work. And I grumbled so much about them. But at the same time, do you know what? I was so thankful that I had a job and Jesus had saved me and I was seeing people saved by the grace of God. I was working at a church at the time and Jesus was changing lives and he, I was reading his word and God was doing wonderful things in my life. Yet, do you know what was so interesting was there was this great moment of joy at how God was at work, yet also this disjointed, horrible, ungodly attitude towards this part of someone's life and my own life. And I was like Israel here, grumbling not once, not twice, but for years, never quite getting it. And eventually, as God did here, 
and he still is, he works in my heart. But I can now give thanks when I look at what God gives to other people, particularly this couple I'm thinking of, and I say, thank you, Lord. You've been so kind to them and me. And it's okay, because I know that Jesus is actually enough for me. And I can be totally at peace with that, knowing that it is a very different circumstance, but also that my God is the one who saves me and provides everything. And if Jesus really is enough, then he will be enough to say, haven't got a new fridge this year, but it's going to be okay. Because of God's kindness and grace and approval of me in Jesus, I'm reminded that there will never come a day when Jesus is not enough. And that is enough. He was willing to suffer and die for you and me to give me life and purpose and direction and satisfaction in him. So let's trust instead of test and let's be filled with gratitude instead of grumbling. Would you join me in doing that? I hope so. Over coffee, why not ask someone how you've seen God's kindness in your life this year? This year. Not just today, but this year. How have you seen God's kindness? Why not share that with someone over coffee? Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you that you know our hearts and our minds and that like we see here, you hear our grumbling, you hear our complaining and you meet us where we're at to remind us that there will never come a day when you're not enough. And we've seen that visibly in the person and work of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection for us to forgive us, to satisfy us, there will never come a day when we can say, Jesus isn't enough anymore. So, Father, change our hearts. It is so tempting to grumble, and we trust comfort and and security more than you, you, and this year has shown us that. So, Father God, may we trust you afresh this week. May we be grateful, not just for the material things we have. Lord, forgive us for that. But thankful that you have saved us and rescued us from those idols around us. And that we're secure in you. In your name we pray. Amen.